0: Well, thanks for that, Alan. I appreciate those words and appreciate being here, of course, with you and this opportunity to share from Hebrews chapter 4. This is a, uh, this is a verse that's special to me, as Alan uh, could tell uh, there. Uh, I was given $10 to memorize this verse when I was about 10 years old by my grandfather. Um, because he was trying to do anything to get my brother and I to focus on the scriptures. It's a popular memory verse. Some of you may have memorized it before as well, but we don't always remember the context that this verse comes in. It would be years later after my little memorization attempt that uh, I would actually understand the context of the verse. The author of Hebrews is writing to his brothers, quote-unquote, as we see in chapter 3, meaning those who count themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, and he's warning them against skepticism of the word of God. He's invoking the memory of the Israelites, who, of course, understood themselves to be the people of God when God led them out of slavery in Egypt, but then they hardened their hearts It says earlier in chapters 3 and 4, they hardened their hearts against the word of God. And they were therefore denied entry into the promised land. You'll remember the first generation of Israelites was left to die in the desert. They were not allowed to enter the promised land or to enter into what the author of Hebrews calls God's rest. Rest for their souls that awaited them in the land that that God had promised to them. And he warns his brothers now that if they likewise harbor skepticism for God's word, then they will likewise be denied entry into God's rest, meaning salvation in Christ. And so it's a warning, actually. Not just a reminder, as I thought when I first encountered it, not just a reminder that the Word of God is important, and not just a reminder that it's powerful, but a warning that those who harden their hearts against the Word of God, like the Israelites in the desert, will not enter into his rest. It was true of the Israelites in the desert. It was true for the first readers of this letter, and it's true today. And that's because our attitude toward the Word of God our attitude toward the Word of God is a very reliable diagnostic of the spiritual condition of our hearts. If we're not in full submission to the Word of God, then we're not actually in submission to God himself. For the Word of God, warns the author of Hebrews is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let us pray. O oh, heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For the word of God starts verse 12 is living and active. The word of God here is actually very easy to translate. <clears throat> it means the word of God, the words spoken by God. Now we know that God communicates without words. Sometimes he communicates through his creation regarding his eternal power and his divine nature. We learn that in Romans chapter one. But specific revelation about God's thoughts, his law, his will, his plan of salvation from the coming judgment comes to us through words. Words spoken by God audibly to Adam and Eve, spoken to Moses to the Israelites at Mount Sinai through mediators through the Old Testament prophets as we often see in Scripture And of course through the words of Jesus Christ who is the word become flesh as we know from John 1 and Hebrews 1 But whoever, uh, however God speaks He's always very careful to ensure that his exact words are written down accurately Jesus himself validated the entire Old Testament right down to the very punctuation, if you remember. Later, he told the apostles that he would send them the Holy Spirit, who would cause them to remember everything that he had taught them and lead them into all truth. And it was those apostles, including Paul, superintended by the Holy Spirit, who ensured that the life and the works and the teachings of Jesus were faithfully recorded, either themselves or by their close associates under their supervision in what we call the New Testament. God cares about accuracy because when he speaks, he speaks the truth. The great shepherd does not mislead his sheep. Here at Sunrise, we join with Bible-believing churches throughout the centuries that believe that the Word of God, as recorded for us in the Bible, is trustworthy and true. We express this in our statement of faith by saying that the Word of God is inspired, verbally inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. By inspired, we mean that all Scripture is breathed out by God, as Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, and because it's breathed out by God, it comes from within him and is actually breathed out by him, we can say that it's verbally inspired, down to the word. These are words that he has governed and superintended. He did not mechanically dictate the words, as, as I think we know, to the writers. Uh, they were not just mere transcribers. But nonetheless, God ensured that every word was his as he intended it to be. It is breathed out by God. By inerrant, we mean that the Bible is without error, in the original manuscripts, of course. In other words, because each word of the Bible is breathed out by God, and God does not err, he does not make mistakes, as we know from Hebrews 6 and from Titus 1. Because God does not err, then his word does not err. Because scripture does not err, and because it all issues from a single mind, when we come across what appears to be a contradiction in scripture, we know we can use other scripture to interpret that scripture and work out that apparent contradiction. Obviously, there can be errors in the, in the man-made copies of the original manuscripts and in the translations of those manuscripts, but God in his province has given us overwhelming documentary evidence of the original transcripts of the Bible down to the very spelling of words so we can have confidence in what we have. And because it's verbally inspired and inerrant, we can also say that it's infallible. Infallibility is a statement about the authority of God, the authority of God's word, uh, meaning that it's the final authority. We draw that from Matthew four, four through ten, and that it cannot be broken. It will not and cannot be broken from John ten thirty five. Lastly, we can say that the word of God is sufficient. And by that we mean that a person doesn't need to draw knowledge actually from other sources and able to be saved, to understand the gospel, to live and to worship God as he would have us do. This trust in the words of scripture is inseparable from our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where it comes to us in the Bible. So the authority of God, we would say, the authority of God and the authority of the Bible are one. There's no distance between them. And so again, our attitude towards the Bible is maybe the best diagnostic of the condition of our hearts. If God is truly our authority, then God's word must truly be our authority. We're going to talk a little bit later about a particular view of the Bible that's different than this, but let's move on through our passage for now. The whole passage hinges on the word of God, so I thought I would go into depth on that there. But Hebrews 4.12 goes on to say that the word of God is living and active to say that a thing is living means that it is alive, it bears fruit, it is life-giving, it is life-sustaining. In John six sixty-three, Jesus says, "'The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life.'" In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, "'It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, "'but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.'" In fact, you might say that God's Word is more alive in some ways than we are, at least in our physical bodies. 1 Peter 1, and 25 says that all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. So it's eternal. In this fallen world where everything's either dead or dying, the Word of the Lord lives forever. God's word is not only living, it is active, it says here. The word active is a translation of a word of the word working. It is working, working to save. Again, 1 Peter 123 says, Christians have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Born again through the living and abiding word of God. So it's working to save. It's also working to sanctify believers. John 17, 17, you remember Jesus' high priestly prayer and he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So God's word is working to save. It's working to sanctify. Now God's word is not only living it says here that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is frequently likened to a sword in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah says of the coming Messiah that his mouth will be like a sharp sword. John, in his revelation of the Son of Man, in the, revela- the book of Revelation chapter 1, says of the Son of Man, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Some say it's described as two-edged because it has a double effect. To believers, God's word is comforting and nourishing. It still wounds, but its wounds are the wounds that lead to healing. To unbelievers, though, it's his instrument of judgment, and the wounds that it delivers lead to death and condemnation the double edged sword and with this double edged sword sword excuse me god pierces to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow now our inner thoughts are complicated aren't they Our thoughts and our motivations are twisted up and intertwined inside us. They're very complicated, but God's word cuts like the scalpel of a skillful surgeon, severing and dissecting our thoughts and our attitudes. And touching off a battle within our hearts between flesh and spirit. That's the essence of the Christian life. God's word can do that like no other. Verse 12 continues, the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The discerns here is a word that derives from the Greek word kritikos. Uh, That's the root word of the word "critic." So God's Word actually has the power to critique what's going on inside of you and me, in our hearts and minds, better than we can do ourselves. It lays you bare and exposes our hypocrisy and our secret doubts and our hidden motivations. verse 13 goes on and no creature is hidden still speaking of the word here by the way and its ability to pierce and to discern no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account as i looked at this verse i focused on this phrase, naked and exposed. It derives from a Greek phrase that's used in two ways elsewhere. Sometimes it's used to describe a wrestler who has another wrestler by the throat, face to face. That's what this verse is communicating, that the word has you by the throat and is staring you in the face. The other way that it's used is to describe a situation in ancient times in which a prisoner at trial would have a dagger secured to his chest with the point underneath his chin so that he was forced to stare into the face of the judge as he was being tried. In other words, God's word forces you to come face to face with the almighty God and to account for ourselves before him not by our intentions, but by the reality of who we are before a holy God. God's word is alive, more alive than you and I. It is eternal. It pierces, it divides, it critiques, and it brings us face to face with the almighty judge of the universe. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I want to speak for a bit about a very different view of the Scriptures than the one that I have just been speaking of and the one that this passage describes. It's a popular view of the Bible. In fact, it's probably the most prominent view of the Scriptures. I'm going to refer to it, as others do, as the view of limited inerrancy. You may have never heard that term before but you've definitely come across this view. Limited inerrancy is the idea that the Bible does contain errors of facts and history, so it's not perfect and inerrant on facts and history, but that it is still inerrant on redemptive or spiritual matters. So its inerrancy, you might say, is limited to the spiritual truths, but doesn't cover the facts and the history of the Bible. For example, a limited inerrantist looks at the book of Genesis and the accounts of creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall, and concludes that those are not historical accounts, and they're not intended as such. Maybe they're stories borrowed from pagan myths, uh, or, But regardless, they're not history. They're untrue, but it's okay. The limited inerrantists would say that's okay though because God, by his spirit, has somehow infused those untrue stories with lessons about God and man that are true. You might call them higher truths, higher than factual truth. Limited inerrantists usually do the same thing with the accounts of Noah and the flood, maybe the parting of the Red Sea, David's defeat of Goliath, much of the history of Israel. Of course, with Jonah and the whale, they might even say the same thing about the virgin birth or Jesus' physical death and resurrection with the atonement and certainly with teachings on God's wrath and on heaven and hell as literal places. Now, some people lean toward this view of limited inerrancy because it relieves you of the burden of having to argue and defend the historical facts of Scripture, which isn't always easy. So it relieves you of that burden, and it's very attractive It's very attractive, of course, to people who are already a little embarrassed of the scriptures. Maybe we're a little embarrassed to say that we believe some of it. So limited inerrancy comes in and allows us to maintain that it's true still while not believing that it's factually accurate. It It can even allow you to join with people outside the church who sometimes make fun of those people who believe that the Bible is factually true. Now, on one hand, we might conclude, hey, look, limited inerrancy isn't a big deal. After all, as long as we agree on some of the key higher truths, maybe we shouldn't quibble over the facts of Scripture. But you need to understand something very important here. Limited inerrancy isn't just another road to the same destination. It actually undermines the Word of God, and it undermines the concept of truth itself. I want to show you what I mean. Limited inerrancy employs a view of the truth that's called the intentionalist view, This is that the truth of a text or a statement is determined by its intended spiritual meaning, not by its factual accuracy. Now, the Bible does not employ the intentionalist view. It it employs what's called the correspondence view of truth. This is that the truth of a text or a statement is determined by its correspondence with reality. Does it match reality? That's the correspondence view. Now, sometimes you hear people try to justify the intentionalist view by saying, "Look, this is the Eastern way of thinking, right? Eastern philosophy. Uh, it's since the Bible was is an ancient text from the Middle East, maybe it's better to use the intentionalist view." To interpret the Bible, rather than the kind of more Western correspondence view. You hear that a lot. But I want you to know this tension between these two views is not new. It's very old. Of course, it picked up steam in, in the West after Darwin published The Origin of Species in the mid-1800s, because... It gave critics of the Bible and critics of biblical, the biblical accounts of creation a lot of wind in their sails and caused a lot of people in the church to want to compromise on those issues. By the late 1800s, this debate was so intense that it ruined the famous Charles Spurgeon's ministry. Many of you know Spurgeon in his last years of ministry was made miserable because his own church, the leaders of his own church, Rejected the inerrancy of Scripture, and this was known as the downgrade controversy. It was very sad that the last chapters of Spurgeon's ministry ended this way. By the 1920s, I'm a former Presbyterian, so I understand the Princeton Theological Seminary was a great seminary in America in the early 1900s, but it also suffered scandal due to this debate. In the 1920s, uh, uh, it was split and people left in protest because Princeton Theological Seminary decided to move away from the inerrancy of scripture and embrace the intentionalist view more expressly. This battle continued in the church and in the lives of believers, of course, up through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it was in the 1970s when some of the giants of the Protestant Christian faith met in Chicago. Hopefully they didn't meet in Chicago in February. I don't know what time of year it was. But they met there to define inerrancy more properly because people were arguing over the meaning of it because of this. So they met there, they penned the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, and signers included a young R.C. Sproul, an even younger John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, James Montgomery Boyce, Francis Schaeffer, and many others. So if you're wondering what the difference is when we talk about the evangelical church and the mainline church, this is what we're talking about. This is the divide in the church, the Protestant church, in America. And if you wonder how some Christians have accommodated Darwinism to the Bible, or how they rationalize accommodating radical forms of feminism, or homosexuality, or gender norming, this is how. It's the intentionalist view of truth. It leaves the interpretations open to you much wider. It all goes back to limited inerrancy and to the intentionalist view of truth. Now I want to give you an illustration of the intentionalist view of truth and this conflict that maybe is more easily identified with. I'm going to put it in everyday terms. So I want you to imagine that you and I are college roommates over here at UNF. You're from around here, but I'm from Argentina. And in Argentina, we are raised with soccer in our blood. We, I think we call it football there, but I'll call it soccer today. Soccer is in our blood. It means everything to us. And I am more fanatical about the Argentinian national soccer team than you or any American could possibly imagine. And while we're roommates, Argentina makes it to the World Cup final. And I am absolutely over the moon. I, I have a spring in my step. I'm excited. I'm joyful. I'm bounding around and I can't concentrate. We have a big exam coming up and you're studying but I can't study because I am so excited. Well, the game time comes and my team loses the championship and I fall into deep depression. So deep. You've never seen anything like it, but so deep. I can't get it together and I miss the exam that you and I have had coming up. You go and take the exam, but I don't show up. So after a while, though, it takes about a week, I gather myself together, I get over my sorrow, and I ask you to come with me to talk to the professor whose exam I missed. We walk over there and we stand in front of the professor and you're standing right beside me And to your astonishment, I look in the eyes of the professor, and I say, Professor, I missed your exam because my mother died, and I was too grieved to study and to come to class. Well, the professor, his heart aches for me, and the professor gives me his condolences, and he allows me to study for another week and take the exam a week later. So I'm feeling pretty good. We walk back to our dorm room, and on the way back, you say, Adam, how could you look that professor right in the eye and lie to him like that? And I stop you, and I say, listen, in my culture, soccer means everything. That professor could never understand the depth of my despair over my team losing. It cut me to the heart. But he could never understand that. So I just put the situation in terms that he could understand. He could never understand my grief over the World Cup. But I knew he would understand a son's grief at the loss of a mother. So while the facts of my story didn't correspond to reality, I got him to understand the higher truth about the depth of my sadness. Now, do you see what I've done here? I have changed the the definition of truth so that the truth does not have to correspond to reality. Instead it's rooted in my intention and in this case my intention Was to help the professor feel the depth of my sorrow and I achieved that So as we walk along I can see that you're not really buying it So I keep talking and I say look I've been studying Eastern culture You know, in the East, they view truth differently than we Westerners do. In Eastern thought, something can be true without being factually true. So to your Western sensibilities, it might seem like I'm lying, but in my more Eastern adopted, Eastern way of thinking, everything I said to him was true. Okay, now what would you think at this point in our conversation? Would you agree that my words to the professor were true? Of course not. I was just plain lying to the professor. I was lying. I might have been dressing it up as some sort of a cultural bridge, or cultural translation. I might have dressed it up as some kind of eastern philosophy, but really what I was doing is I was deceiving him. And this is the problem with applying the intentionalist view of the truth to God's word. When we impose the intentionalist view onto God's word, we're really saying that God is lying to us in his word, that he presents things as facts that are not facts, and that he presents as history things that did not happen. Now, there are many things wrong with this, starting with the fact that Jesus himself affirms the historical accuracy of the six day creation account Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, Moses and the serpent, Moses and the manna from heaven, the experience of Lot and his wife, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, the miracles of Elijah. He affirms the truth of Jonah and the whale, and the reality of heaven and hell. And so on. So Jesus himself affirms the historicity of passages such as those, and not only that, he made it clear that his teachings, in many cases, in many cases rested upon those events in space and time. He roots his teachings on marriage and gender in a literal Adam and Eve. He used the account of Jonah and the whale to help us better understand his death and resurrection. He said that in some ways, his return and judgment would be like Noah's flood. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul follows this pattern as well, saying plainly that if Christ was not actually dead and actually raised in real space and time, then our sins are not actually atoned for. The author of Hebrews agrees in chapter 9, saying, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, the historical facts of the Bible provide the foundation and correspond with the higher spiritual teachings that are taken from them. So God, in his word, imposes the correspondence view on us, whether we like it or not. You see, it's not the Western way of thinking, as some people would say. It's the biblical way. And the the intentionalist view is not the Eastern way. It's the unbeliever's way of thinking. We all know this. People of all cultures in all times use it. Not just Easterners. We all use it when we're trying to escape the truth when we're trying to escape the trap that God has set for us with the facts of reality. Now, as an aside, I want to point out that, of course, God, in his word, sometimes uses parables and metaphors to teach analogies as well. Alan actually preached on one of the great parables last Sunday. It was a great sermon and a great lesson. Our scripture this morning likens the word of God to a physical sword. So there you have another one. I actually just used a little parable about you and me being roommates to try to illustrate a point. So obviously these are effective teaching tools. God sometimes uses those methods to teach But he does not present as true things that are false. And he does not deceive in order to teach the truth. And when he uses parables and stories, he uses them not to obfuscate reality, but to illuminate reality. Not to make things less clear, but to make them more clear. And not to make them more abstract, but to help us understand how very real they are. More real, oftentimes, than we like to think. When God says his word is sharper than any two-edged sword, for example, he is saying his word, his word is able to pierce more deeply and is more deadly than a sword you would hold in your hand. Not less. The kind of sword you hold in your hand will one day rust and it will dullen. It can only kill the body. But God's word is eternal and it can sentence both soul and body to eternal judgment. Matthew 10, 28. <clears throat> now, I also want to say, in a, uh, in a touchy discussion, say with an unbelieving friend or family member, we may sometimes want to discreetly sidestep these debates over the facts and history of the Bible from the time to time. And I think we can use our judgment on that. I don't think we have to accept every challenge from every skeptic to prove every, every line of scripture. And sometimes you know skeptics will use that against you to try to flummox you in a discussion. So I don't think we have to accept every challenge on that and prove the historicity of every passage and every discussion. I think it's okay to choose your battles is what I'm saying. But we need to be careful because if we're always sidestepping the debates if we sidestep them with our children for example if we're always sidestepping those issues then we could be actually slipping or encouraging others to slip into more of an intentionalist view so it's one thing to choose our battles but it's another to adopt and take on the intentionalist view, and decide that maybe the facts don't matter. They matter. When we actually adopt the intentionalist view for ourselves, that we decouple the facts of God's word from its truth and from the meaning of God's word, we end up making ourselves not just interpreters of his word, but the judges, the arbiters of of what God has said. My friends, I, I just want us all to be on the lookout for this. I think familiarizing ourselves with some of these terms and concepts is important. I think we encounter this more than more than we realize sometimes. And I just want us to remember always that our attitude towards the Bible is probably the best Diagnostic of the condition of our hearts, the spiritual condition. Those who place themselves above God's word as the arbiter and the judge of truth are not actually in submission to God and will not enter God's rest. It is those who place themselves underneath God's word who submit to it. In humility, they will enter God's rest. Yeah, I was so uplifted recently to hear of a group of people at sunrise, I don't even know who you all are, who meet regularly, apart from regular Bible studies, this group meets regularly on their own initiative to just read the scriptures together. They'll pick a book Or a passage, and they just meet to read God's word on their own and let and let it wash over them and sit underneath it to take it in. Now they would only do that because they believe the Bible is the very word of the Almighty God with the power. To conform and transform our hearts and our minds. And they want to, they meet this way because they want to rest. They want to rest like sheep in the arms of the shepherd. They know his voice and they want to heed his voice and be led by it as one of the elders at Sunrise, I can say we often sit around and we've kind of marveled together at the unity that we have here at Sunrise and the peace that we've had for so many years now. We know it's the Holy Spirit, only he can provide it, but we ask ourselves, what, how, how is it? How is it that we, although we're different and have different opinions about certain things, that we've had and enjoyed this blessing Of unity and peace for so long. And I think this is the reason. It's our mutual commitment to sit under the Word rather than place ourselves over the Word. It creates a bond. It creates a bond among us that's stronger than little disagreements and personal preferences. And it overrides those secondary disagreements. And it allows us to rest by the still waters and in the green pastures of our great shepherd. If you're here this morning and you're not experiencing God's rest, and his peace. I want to suggest that it could be you might have the wrong view of the scriptures. And I would encourage you to ask yourself, what really is my attitude towards the word of God? It's one of the most important questions a person can ask themselves You know why? Because the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, thank you for the precious gift of your written word. As we humble ourselves before you, we ask you, to use your word to transform our hearts and minds, to conform us to the image of your son, that great shepherd of the sheep who bled and died and rose again so that his sheep, those who know his voice, might be cleansed of sin and receive the further gift of eternal life in your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.